Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Hello and welcome back to FT Science. We have a bumper edition this week looking at climate change and flooding. La Nina is when the Pacific Ocean becomes abnormally cool and that tends to accelerate the monsoon systems throughout most of the southern hemisphere. The evil side of stem cells. We know quite a lot about certain tumour cells and there is this new subpopulation within a tumour that we are realising are actually stem cell-like. And health in Haiti. What going there a year later has highlighted to me is also those underlying health problems that were there far before the earthquake. I'm Clive Cookson, and you're listening to FT Science. This week, Diana Garnham, Chief Executive of the UK Science Council, is in the studio with me as usual. Hello, Diana. Hello, Clive. And we welcome my FT colleague, Andrew Jack, back from Haiti. How did you get on there last week, Andrew? It's quite adventurous, fascinating time, but a very difficult and sad place. We also welcome our special guest in the studio, Clive Stanway, who's Chief Scientist for Cancer Research Technology. Hello, Clive. Hello, good afternoon. We'll be talking to Clive a little later about cancer stem cells. But first, to climate change and the impact La Nina is having on Australia and elsewhere in the Southern Hemisphere. On the line, we have two experts on weather and climate change, Rob Allen from the UK Met Office and Nick Klingerman from Reading University. Nick, perhaps you could explain first what La Nina is and what effect it's having now on the Southern Hemisphere. La Nina is when the Pacific Ocean, the equatorial Pacific Ocean, becomes abnormally cool. So the ocean temperatures there cool down, and that tends to accelerate the monsoon systems throughout most of the southern hemisphere, including, as we've been seeing, in Australia. Has it caused flooding in Brazil, which we've also been hearing about? Yes, there is a connection between uh, La Nina and the rainfall in Brazil. The the rains that we've seen uh, near Rio have been a bit further south than we would normally expect for La Nina. But as uh, this is one of the strongest La Ninas we've seen in the last 40 or 50 years, it's not unexpected that we've been seeing heavy rainfall there. Rob, why do you think it is such an intense La Nina? Is it just natural variation in the climate or do you think there's something special happening now? certainly uh, are used to uh, having at times these large events. Uh, they're not uh, as frequent uh, as <laughs> they would cause the, the huge amount of damage if they could uh, more regularly. But I think the thing is that uh, we certainly have a situation where some sort of changes in the climate, climate change, that are certainly important and we need to look at them carefully. But there's a lot of natural variability in the climate system. Now, whether this is entirely natural variability, but with some climate change over the top, these are the sort of things that scientists are grappling with. But certainly it's a, it's a very large event. Nick, what do you think is the immediate outlook? I mean, we're still in a pretty intense La Nina. How long is it going to last, and is it going to cause more flooding, and if so, where? 
The current La Nina is predicted to continue through February and into March. These events do tend to decay as we move into northern hemisphere spring, southern hemisphere autumn, round about April time. Um, but certainly with this particularly strong La Nina forecast to continue for the next several months, we would expect to see uh, above normal monsoon rains in many of the places that have been experiencing flooding over the last month. So that's Australia, Brazil, uh, Sri Lanka, and the Philippines. Rob, what do you think? Yes, well, certainly we can add to Southern Africa too. That they've had, had, had floods in South Africa. I think Mozambique probably hasn't got the coverage the other places have. But again, that's a, a typical response to a La Nina event, certainly a strong La Nina event. There has been some talk of perhaps it may be a, a double event that we may actually get it dropping off, perhaps uh, as, as Nick had said, and then perhaps resurging again later this year. But again, that's very speculative. But there has been some of this uh, sort of thoughts floating around in the media of, of late. There are also thoughts, aren't there, that there could be 10-year cycles, 40-year cycles overlaid on climate change. So it could be that the next decade is going to be very wet in places like Queensland. What, what do you think of that, Nick? We do know that there are decadal variations in Pacific Ocean temperatures. So that is, as you said, anywhere from 10 up to 40 years. Whether those are connected with El Nino and La Nina is a very active area of research at the moment. But we have seen that decadal variability in the Pacific, and that does seem to be connected to decadal variations in Australian rainfall. Now, we were just in, uh, over the last 20 years or so, a particularly warm phase in the Pacific. So it is possible that we could be moving into a cool phase, and hence that we could see a, a decade of above normal rainfall in Australia. But it's very difficult to predict at this time. And Nick, just to carry on, I believe you're working for the Queensland government on a specific research project Yes. Uh, so here at the Walker Institute at the University of Reading, we are working very closely with the Queensland government to understand the causes of historical variations in Queensland's rainfall and try to use that information combined with our latest state-of-the-art uh, computer models to make better predictions for the next few years, for the next several decades, uh, which is obviously very important for agriculture and water management in Queensland. And Rob, finally, what is the Met Office doing I run an international initiative basically trying to reconstruct the weather back over the last couple of hundred years. And so what we're doing is looking to recover a lot of uh, data from both ships, marine data, and from the land, and trying to improve the database and therefore the reconstructions of the weather. In doing that, we will be able to look at things like La Nina, El Nino, etc., on a longer time frame with much better data uh, and uh, to be able to therefore give us a much better statistical base to be able to test our models which into the future with climate change and these things in mind. And Rob, can I ask you, is there likely to be a knock-on effect in the Northern Hemisphere, Northern Europe in the late spring? The relationship with, um, with El Nino and La Nina, both extremes of the one phenomenon with Europe, is, is much more tenuous than it is with some of the re- well, most of the regions we've been talking about. And so the relationships there are, as I say, are much more tenuous. So we, we have to look very carefully at it. It's a situation where we even need even more data because there are less events that we've seen uh, linking into Europe. Uh, so we have to be a bit more careful with the situation in Europe, but there's certainly an active area of research within the, the Met Office. Well, that's a suitably cautious answer. Thanks very much. I'm going to have to say goodbye to you two climate guys because time is moving on. So thanks very much, Rob, and thanks very much, Nick. Now, let's move on to cancer stem cells. Most of the publicity that goes to stem cells is positive. They're seen as the great hope of regenerative medicine, leading to new cures for all sorts of diseases. 
But stem cells have an evil side too, cancer stem cells. And the charity Cancer Research UK has just announced a big new research project on cancer stem cells. To talk about it, we have in the studio Clive Stanway, whom I introduced earlier as Chief Scientist for Cancer Research Technology. Tell us first about your new initiative. Well, it's a consortium of four academics who are world leaders in their areas. They're addressing different indications of cancer, and we're bringing them together to actually synergize and produce exciting research that we hope will generate new reagents and assays uh, and, in the longer term, uh, new therapeutics that will address a new area of cancer that we have only just begun to understand. Well, let's start with first principles. What exactly is a cancer cell? Do we know how to recognise it? Do we know how to kill it? What do we know about it? We know quite a lot about certain tumour cells, but in, inevitably, as people conduct further research, we find out more. And there is this new subpopulation within a tumour uh, that we are realising are actually stem cell-like. How do these stem cells relate to the stem cells that people will have heard much more about? Embryonic stem cells, fetal stem cells, adult stem cells? From what we understand already, we know that they are derived from the stem cells that you might find in a normal tissue, such as your skin, and they have almost certainly already become mutated, and they are forming or regenerating the tumour as it is either killed or naturally dies. So they really are the engine that drives the tumour's development? They are certainly an engine because, in in effect, the normal tumour cells are also able to uh, proliferate, and that's due to the mutations that they carry as well. So they are a component which will cause the tumour to renew once you may have already, let's say, by surgery or chemotherapy or radiotherapy, ablated a large part of the tumour. Is that one reason why some cancers are so much harder to get rid of than others, that the cancer stem cells in those hard-to-treat cancers are just more resilient, or do they hide? Does it account for differences between tumours? Possibly so. We really need to understand the basic biology better, which is one of the reasons why Cancer Research UK is so keen to fund and and to drive this particular consortium. So it's an effort whereby we need to understand better to answer exactly those questions. And how is the project, this consortium, going to commercialise its results? You work for the commercial arm of the charity. Presumably you'll be working with drug companies in due course, will you? The vision of the charity and also cancer research technology is to make sure that new discoveries are developed better to uh, to treat cancer patients. And certainly one of those ways is to actually then transfer the, the new discoveries into the, the hands of uh, pharmaceutical companies, whereby, of course, they give a proper return to Cancer Research UK in the longer term. So, yes, it's quite possible that this will move into the sphere where um, a pharmaceutical company will partner with the consortium and actually become part of that synergistic research collaboration. Andrew? Yeah, Clive, obviously cancer research technology is relatively new, but uh, we see this as a sort of new approach to these sorts of partnerships with the drug industry than we've seen in the past, you know, more rapid integration, a different approach commercially maybe between the academics and the industry. It is a new approach. We're finding that pharmaceutical companies are realising that they need to uh, work with the academic community far more and we're trying to encourage that positive interaction for both sides. Is the UK 
a world leader in this area. What's happening in the States? We always looked across the Atlantic. The answer is yes. <laughs> but obviously, um, there are many researchers around the world who are excellent, but CIUK is very proud, and rightly so, of its uh, research record, and at the same time, you can't uh, sit on your laurels, you have to move forward, and that's why this new initiative, we believe, will, will actually uh, well move the whole cancer research field forward. And a maddening sort of question that journalists always ask, how long before this research pays off with better treatments for cancer? How long before it reaches the patient? It is a long process, sadly, and this particular research initiative is very much at the beginning, so we're hoping that this will generate uh, new reagents and assays that uh, will... Uh, lead to new therapeutic approaches. But once you actually start the therapeutic approach, it tends to be something in the region of 10 years, maybe slightly more, before you actually see a launched drug. But obviously, the large part of that is clinical trials, uh, where human beings are actually part of the process. And that can actually lead to some benefit in, in that process too. Thank you. Finally this week, a more immediate health problem. I want to ask Andrew Jack about Haiti after the earthquake and particularly about his impressions of health care a year after the disaster. Andrew. Well, of course, it's a, it looks a tragic state, Haiti. And of course, the irony going back to our first segment is a lot of people for a long time had expected severe hurricane damage, which passes over the Caribbean each year. But in fact, of course, in January last year, it was this devastating earthquake that really created the damage and people weren't prepared for, killed a quarter of a million people, including something like 20% of all civil servants. So Alongside the physical damage, huge damage right in the capital to all the ability of the institutions, including incidentally the UN and international NGOs, to respond. And so you've had, of course, the initial trauma, the death, the injuries, the amputations that were linked to the earthquake. But what going there a year later has highlighted to me is also those underlying health problems that were there far before the earthquake. And so you've got this irony where there's something like 800,000 people displaced from their original homes who are living now in temporary camps. But ironically, they're probably living in better circumstances than many of the people who survived in the old slums where they used to live. So particularly in terms of access to sanitation, latrines, clean water, they're better provided. You've even had a phenomenon of people moving more recently from the old slums into these refugee centres to get access. And so that's created, of course, lots of conditions for infectious disease. And of course, particularly since October, concerns about cholera. Where did that come from, do you think? Well, the irony is, of course, it came from a remote rural area of Haiti, completely distant from the centre of the earthquake damage. And indeed, there are suggestions it may have been brought by UN peacekeepers from Nepal into the country and then spread initially through poor hygiene practices, also by hurricanes and mixing of water right across the country. So it's killed something like 3,800 people so far, but still is impacting most, not in... What one might expect the urban areas, the earthquake damage zones, where there's a strong presence of non-governmental organisations, but in the remote and rural areas. There's been a lot of criticism, Andrew, of the vast numbers of NGOs that have been working there. And one of the things that strikes me as amazing is how that sort of age NGO culture is still not holistic. You know, you have health charities, water charities, food charities. And as I understand it, that's been one of the big problems, that you end up with 
50 or 60 players in a village all doing a little bit. Was that your experience? Yes, I mean, they call Haiti the Republic of NGOs. There were several hundred before. There's several thousand of different sizes afterwards, many thousands of foreign expatriate workers. It's a difficult challenge, of course, because there's a desire to do good, very often from people who perhaps have lots of goodwill but don't necessarily have the technical expertise. With that many players, it's almost impossible to coordinate. But I think there's probably a distinction to be made between individual volunteers and indeed missionary groups on the one hand and on the other a fairly small number of quite large and professional organizations that have learnt some of the lessons from previous disasters. So lastly what's your prognosis for Haiti? Are you at all optimistic for the next few years? Well, it'd be nice to think that the growing international attention, a lot of donor funds, more than $5 billion that have been pledged, and uh, an election process currently underway under a lot more scrutiny than had taken place in the country in recent years could create a momentum for positive change. But it really is a country that's almost beginning again from zero. So I think it's going to be terribly difficult, one, to rebuild in any terms, and two, to maintain the appetite and support of foreign donors over the next few years. Well, I really, really hope it works out for the Haitians. I'm afraid that's all we have time for today. Please join us again next week for more fascinating tales from the world of science. All that's left is for me to thank my studio guests, Clive, Andrew and Diana, and my phone guests, Rob and Nick, for joining us. And thank you for listening. FT Science was produced by LJ Filatrani. I'm Clive Cookson. Goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellingcat.com.